guys, welcome back to the Image Junkies podcast, the podcast for news and documentary filmmakers, camera people, producers, directors, pretty much anyone who shoots for a living or works in the news and documentary sphere. If you're new to the show, thanks for thanks for downloading it. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it and go back to and go back and listen to previous episodes. For those of you who are, who are regulars, welcome back. And thanks to those people who have been sending me messages supporting the show. I really appreciate it. And it really does give me the motivation to keep going. So thanks thanks a lot for that. In today's interview, it's actually an old one I recorded a few years ago. I never really did anything with, but it still stands the test of time. And I think it's still packed with really interesting and useful information. It's an interview with a, a cameraman and editor I've known for many years called Richard Atkinson, who's a bit of a legend here in South Africa. He started work for the SABC, South African Broadcasting Corporation, over 40 years ago. Uh, I won't give away his story now, I'll let him tell you, but the changes he's seen in technology and in the way we cover stories, and also uh, just the sort of, you know, the kit that he talks about using and how that's changed, I just think is absolutely brilliant. And one thing that I've always loved and respected about Richard is He's, you know, let's be honest, one of the older guys I know in the industry, one of the guys who's been around the longest, but he still stays on top of the technology, he's still enthusiastic, and he's still a bloody good bloke to have a beer with. Now, I've lifted this from a a podcast I tried to make uh, a long time ago and never really got anywhere with, and that's why there's a bit of annoying music over it, so apologies for that at the beginning. But uh, other than that, I hope it won't put you off. So without further ado, meet Richard Atkinson. Well, first started as a cameraman in 1974, and uh, I had been working for a photographic company in Durban. And some, you must remember at this time there was no television in South Africa. Television in South Africa officially only started in, I think it was either 76 or 77. So they decided to start training up people for the television network, which was the SABC television. And I heard about it, and I got onto one of the very first courses. So I then switched from shooting stills and working in a studio and, and working mainly in stills, which is what I'd studied at college, and then came to do the television course. So I was at an advantage in terms of understanding lots of things like the lens technology, you know, physics of lenses and the chemistry, because bear in mind, we, we, if you got into the film unit, we were shooting film 16mm, and only the studio cameras were uh, video. So... So a lot of the concepts and principles were the same. Yeah, so I was I was at an advantage over quite a few of the other guys on the course who just came from absolutely nowhere. They were farmers' sons or whatever, and then I I, I did very well in a sense in the in in the film side. So I was then selected to be one of four out of the forty people on the course to be in the film unit. So we we then proceeded as as assistant cameramen to already qualified cameramen and started shooting. Uh, dramas and uh, features um, so obviously I went to being focus puller clapper loader as it was called in those days loading magazines threading the camera 60 mil Ari BLs Ari Flex BLs so um, you had a very good grounding in that sense and then I got the travel bug so I left and went overseas for a while and when I came back was uh, would have been 76 when I came back one of my mates who was at the SABC was a journalist had become the he had become a kind of, in those days, even then, he'd become the, the journo cameraman in Durban. And he said, look, I, uh, there's a So they, they even had sort of multi-skilled journalists in 76? Yeah, it was, wow. all by, it was more by a, a shortage of funds than it was by a design, <laughs> I think. Than, uh, 
So George was uh, the, 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 the journalist, and he got me the job as cameraman. So I went down there, and that's when I kind of switched from shooting mainly only uh, 16mm negative on, in, in, in Docky's, the film unit, to shooting news. So I really did film my first news assignment with a CP16, which was an American camera, but shooting reversal, because those days we shot, you didn't shoot neg, obviously, because of the speed of the need to process the film and then have it on air that night if, if you were shooting locally. Yeah, but I, I think what film did was it gave you a huge discipline in terms of um, managing what you shot and editing in the camera, not just sort of what we used to call hose piping all over the place, spraying the camera, you know, shooting anything that moved mm. <coughs> and worthless material. So it's taught you a certain discipline. I think the second thing that you also taught you was how to manage your media quite well. And I've noticed that, funny enough, we skipped this whole generation with, with tape. And we're coming back to it almost now with um, shooting digital, I find. It's difficult to have trained and started your career in that environment and then to change the whole mindset. I think people tried quite hard in the 80s when we started shooting video and the favorite producers song was video tape is cheap you know, shoot as much as you want but I think that's fine tape is cheap but to shoot 20 cassettes of 20 minutes like length each for a 8 or 10 or 12 minute film or 2 minute film yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you know it wasn't so much the cost of the tape it's cost of the time later sitting in the edit suite and, and, and spooling through hours and hours and hours and hours of often unused uh, you know useless material and when you switched to video uh, you, you say you had to shoot a lot more, but how did you find that transition? Yeah, I think what happened, what what made it a little different for me than for most other people was I, at the point that BBC made the decision to change from film to video, they then brought the, the new video editing suites out to South Africa and an engineer came out and he was more of a technical guy as opposed to a creative person. But he understood how the machines worked and so as a cameraman, I was around when that happened because there were so few of us. It was a very small little bureau in those days. And the, the current picture editor who was editing the 16mm film could not grasp the concept of how to edit on these machines because it was so vastly different. So I happened to learn the technical process of editing before anybody else did. In the, and, and I'd learned editing in the film course that I'd done. So I then by default became the picture editor. And I think <coughs> that sort of helped me once I'd switched from shooting film to video as well as that I was able to be shoot my video footage and come back and edit it afterwards. So it also gave me a new and additional discipline over just being a cameraman restricted to 10-minute mm. ten, ten spools of film in a, in a magazine. I, uh, I learned a lot about my areas in my filmmaking being able to sit and have to go through my material and edit it and I think it was a very useful um, uh, uh, opportunity you know that I was so fortunate that I was allowed to do the editing would and that have been one inch umatic when it, it was umatic yeah mm. it was three quarter inch three quarter inch yeah the one inches were in the studios right and we had the three quarter inch umatic with those large clunky cassettes yes and the, and the, and the and your sound man was linked to you by an umbilical cord and did he basically just have a recorder rather he, than... He wasn't even well doing it, sound. He no, just it, had had, it, it, it had the inputs for sound. Right. And he had two little pots on the top. And then you had a big... So you had an umbilical cord coming from the camera. 
and then you had your if um, you didn't obviously you didn't then carry a sound mixer because then, then the the mics would plug straight into we either had what we called a BVU fifty was like a smaller slightly lighter machine which was easier to run with and carry mm. and then we had a one ten but that the fifty could only record right and then we had a one ten which you, which which was like a player so it could it could record and then you could stop and you could rewind you could review your material. But the, the 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 sound guys did not like the one tens because it was back back breaking. Uh, I bet. So um, it was it was actually a momentous occasion when the first cameras came out, the beta cams. Yes, was um, this the beta SP? Well, it was before SP. It was uh. just called it was just called beta. That's all beta cam. And um, SP was sort of an upgraded version where they improved the picture quality quite considerably. So when the first beta cams came out, you, you could shoot, and they had a either they were the very big ones that had a docked recorder on the back mm. which I didn't um, go for because I just felt it was also an extra heavy piece of kit but you could get the beta cams that had um, uh, the, the the recorder built in you know the beta cam tape the deck was, in, was all in one part of the, the camera I can't remember the was something like a 100 yeah well they were 200s I had a 200 there was mm. a 200 and a 300 the very first beta cams then the, SP, the SPs came out, started, started. sorry, the SP started with the 300, and there was the 400. Um, you know, every time, obviously, there was a, a format change. Eventually, I bought the, the Betacam, the SP's uh, edits, editing equipment. Oh, you brought your own? I had my own, so I was sort of running a, a parallel kind of facility for the BBC here, mm. doing news nights and panoramas and, other, and some of the other feature programs. And news when we were very busy because we often had more than one correspondent in the 80s and the early mm. 90s with a Mandela release and so on. So um, you can just imagine these machines which weighed um, in the region of about, what, 30, 25 to 30 kgs each just about, and then in a metal case, and then traveling with a large... So you would travel with them we on would, location? We would travel on location with these huge machines... Um, with a, with a sound mixing uh, d disc, with two large monitors that looked like large televisions, the type <laughs> you used to have in your house sort of, that we'd stick on top. So we would go away with easily, just for the edit suite, sort of, I don't know, 120 kilos of, of, of edit suite plus then all your camera gear. Sure. And, um, I mean, there was one just little anecdote. You know, we were doing the Pope's trip. And uh, where to South Africa? He was he was in Harare and in Zimbabwe, and then he was going to Lesotho. And I arrived at the airport. In those days, we were still using charters, and we had a King Air aircraft, a twin-engine plane. And, the, and it was was night time, and the pilot took one look at all this equipment, and he said, "Well, that's a lot of stuff." And I said, "Well, I'll consent it the next day on the commercial flight." And he said, "Don't worry, as long as we don't lose an engine, we're fine." And of course, an hour into the flight. The one engine blew out, oh, no. and we started hurtling towards the ground. And I was thinking of whether I could push the edit suite out of the door. You know, yeah. twenty thousand feet. <laughs> Hope it doesn't land <laughs> on anyone. <No. laughs> <laughs> so as we kept hurtling down, um, eventually they managed to stabilize it. And it's a very long story, but we had to double back, and we landed in Bulawayo and burst the tires and oh, so on. Oh my god! But then my colleague, one of them, got out, and it was a, it was very appropriate at the time. And he said, "Now I know why the Pope kisses the ground every time he gets out of the plane." <laughs> Christ, that yeah. must have that must have been a tough uh, call for you. Thinking, do I throw away my incredibly expensive edit suite <laughs> and save my life, or do we just hope that you know we get the plane back yeah. in the air? And yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, uh, I must say, we lived and worked for such a long time with it, uh, traveling like that, and I got very, 
I got very good at arriving somewhere and there was something big had happened and you were in a huge hurry and actually there was a lot of wiring to do and chucking all the right cables in and the ins and outs and the backs of the machines and patching everything together and getting going with the edit because bear in mind of course we we had bigger crews we had they did get rid of the sound men at one point but we still had separate picture editors so mm. if you went off on shoots and there were big stories we would shoot and there would be a guy who'd go ahead and, or he would go to the hotel when we'd all rushed off to the venue or wherever it was, set up the edit suite. So by the time uh, they wanted to start editing, somebody could sort of ferry the tapes from mm. wherever you were shooting to the guy who could start editing. And there was obviously no log and capture time in those days. I mean, it was tape, so you were, you were, you were from player straight to recorder um, with its own obvious disadvantages in that you know, if the correspondent turned to you about after four hours of editing and said, I'd rather have the big end part as the beginning and the, the, can we change that bit in the middle? And there was no way without then making another copy, you know, sort of taking the whole film and re-editing it and losing a generation, which was noticeable. Hmm. You could see it getting grainy and you could see it deteriorating. So there was a discipline in those days as well not to change your mind and to make it, you know, decide this is the opening shot this is where this interview goes, where the piece to camera goes, where the last interview, where the end shot's going to, you know, short of changing anything in the last 30 seconds, maybe not so bad, but definitely not trying to turn a whole piece around. I mean, I don't, not to bring up names, but there were some correspondents who were very good at at, at, at doing this, and, and there was those who were not. But I just, if I can mention one person, who I just was absolutely brilliant, because basically we come speeding back from the township, after some you know, funeral had gone wrong and more people had been killed and um, <clears throat> and, you'd, and you'd obviously had all these amazing speeches at the funeral and Tutu had said this or said that and so he would say to me you know, you go to the edit suite and you cut an opening sequence of um, you know, say 20 seconds of co uh, coffins arriving and then I want Tutu's speech inwards this, outwards that then give me 30 seconds of um sort of wailing in front over the coffins and, 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 and then, then a clip from so-and-so and they give me that, I'd virtually, I'd just go and cut the whole piece while he sat in mm. the room next door writing, come in and he would just lay the track and it would fit almost without a single alteration. If it didn't, he would just say, wait, I can correct it, boop, 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 knock out a few words here or there or add a few words. And that was a pleasure. Who, who was that? Well, that was Michael Burke. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was very good at um, at, 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 at writing to pictures and understanding film and understanding how to marry the two and, 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 and um, his, his script didn't, didn't necessarily always describe absolutely what was in what you were looking at. His words were, give, were another dimension almost that they mm. added a whole extra level to a piece and I, he was very good in that way. He, 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 he had a very clear mind in the sense of what in the minute when you were shooting it he knew what he wanted. He, he didn't go out looking for the pictures to match some preconceived idea, but while you were in the process of making the film... So a true he, pro, basically. He was very good at filmmaking, yeah. Mm. Though, he, though he did end up spending most of his career sitting behind a desk presenting the news. Uh, and a it's a drawback from being too famous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've been doing this job now, based in Africa, for like over 30 years. What have, what have been the highlights for you on a personal level, just from the travel and the experiences you've yeah. had? I would say still one of the, the, the perhaps in it probably set in stone sort of the future of my career in a way because of the excitement and the enjoyment of it was being asked to shoot 
the, the end of the Rhodesian War, the uh, the ceasefire, and the, um, the 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 process of of of, of the guerrilla forces coming into these assembly camps which were set up around the country in, in what was then Rhodesia to become Zimbabwe. And they made a decision because of the sensitive nature of that process um, that they would only allow one cameraman out of the whole world media and two correspondents which were going to be a BBC and an ITN correspondent. So the correspondent was John Humphreys and David Smith was the ITN correspondent. So we, we basically went off two or three days before the midnight ceasefire to set up one of the assembly camps, a bush camp, and we were with the Royal Marines, and they it worked in parallel with Rhodesian security forces. So we were with the Grey Scouts from the Rhodesian, and uh, and so I, I, I was I knew I was the only guy in the world with the responsibility, on shooting Neg in those days too, you know, to shoot on my own, no sound person or anything, to shoot the first pictures of these guys coming out of the bush, and then to get them back to Salisbury slash Harare. And they would then had all sorts of brought machines in from outside of the country to process into little satellites to feed it, which it was not usually possible in Rhodesia. Um, so uh, it did take quite a few days for the first guys to appear, but I, I had got a sense because we had two liaison officers, and I noticed the one disappear off into the bush for quite a long time, come back, and I saw him whispering and chatting to the commander for the Royal Marines and. And I stood there ready with my tripod and my camera. And the next thing, this fellow walked out of the bush with a huge bandana full of, you know, rounds of ammunition and with a massive heavy caliber weapon. It wasn't just an AK-47. <laughs> you know, and I was shaking a bit, but it was more the excitement because I just knew the momentous... Yeah, if it had sort of happened the day we arrived, I think it wouldn't have been the same. But the fact that mm. we'd sat there for days and they were watching with night sights and seeing people skirting the camp and knowing these guys were, you know, what they call Majibas, were like the recce guys of the guerrilla forces were watching us, and it was a kind of strange feeling, and we used to get our meals sent through that Hercules, big big transport aircraft, would fly, and then we'd have to s- mark out what they called a DZ, a drop zone, and these guys would just open this big back door of this, and it would come flying past us, and they had to push out these pallets of food just at the right point that it would hit this drop zone, so this stuff would come tumbling out the back of this plane and hit the ground, and you know, there was there was quite a bit of stuff to shoot in the uh, first two or three days. Also, the Royal Marines and the Grey Scouts digging in trenches and setting up camp. But just the fact that I got the first images of one of the very very historic sort of important mm-hmm. events in the world, and so I'd, I'd kind of always remembered that. Um, uh, you know, if I if I don't restrict it completely to Africa, then sort of at the other end was I got sent to well Argentina to cover the Falklands, and that was such a different experience. Richard met his wife there, I should point out. So he has very personal reasons for uh, <laughs> for remembering that one. Yeah, that would be being a much more joyful. <laughs> yeah. So that was incredibly quiet because we, obviously we were in Teredolf Wager and we were quite far from the Falkland Islands. So we didn't really see a lot of, um, uh, you know, action. But, but, uh, but, but we were in the middle of the story, so it was very interesting. And then within days of getting back from that, I got sent to Lebanon to Beirut in 82, which was quite... Oh, after com- the marine bombing? Well, it was before that. It was earlier than that. So, But it was at the most extreme end of warfare because you could never get away from the, the incoming and the gunfire. You know, the, the people would be shooting at you. And when you were in your hotel, you, 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 you sort of... There were only at night when you could drive up into the outskirts of Beirut could you escape the actual heavy artillery and the katushas and the... the Isra- you know, we were in between the Israelis, basically, and the Palestinians. So, 
and there was another front where they were fighting the Syrians. So virtually every day there was something to do. If they weren't, there wasn't, there weren't battles on the one front, they would shift you to the other front. So we weren't like the soldiers who got at least got a few days off every now and then. Yeah, we were always um, kind of in the firing line. So I, I found that was like a completely the other extreme. And of course, we didn't have. You know, risk high risk. There was no risk assessment. Mm. There were no guys, military guys, ex-military as advisors or anything. Did you have uh, body armor or helmets or anything? We, yeah, I I seem to remember we didn't have helmets. We had body armor, but we never really wore it, and it was a bit uncomfortable. Sort of pack it against the doors of the car in case someone shot at you. Um, But uh, we just relied on our Lebanese drivers. They became our sort of eyes and ears and early warning system, so to speak, Mm. because they had an amazing way of knowing where the dodgy bits were but I mean every now and then you got taken by surprise because you you may be at a particular outgoing position and you stayed there a bit too long and then the opposition had sighted them in and the next thing you were in a barrage of incoming fire so that was quite um, uh, uh, that was a period that I would not forget very quickly I think it sort of stays with me for a long time now I know you probably have to leave in a minute don't you so very very quickly um What's what's next for Richard Atkinson? Wow, that's a good question. I I wish I could even answer that in the sense that I kept thinking that I was going to bail out of this even 15 years ago, and I t- sort of bought a little farm and went farming, but somehow the lure of this job I could still <laughs> <laughs> remain the dominant factor. You know, my wife always says to me when I whinge and complain, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I need to retire. She says, oh, you wouldn't last a week. <laughs> without the thrill and the excitement of doing this job that we do. So I think Richard's quite typical there of a lot of camera people who uh, and people who make news and documentary films in that it's very, very hard to ever give this job up because it's so much fun. The money might not be amazing, but generally you can get by if you work for a decent, a decent uh, broadcaster or you know, have, have a decent employer. And just the adventures and experiences it allows you to have are, are something else really and I mean, that's what's kept me in the game. You know, I've been doing this now since, well, I started in the TV industry in 2001, I think. So my maths is rubbish. What's that? Like 17 years, uh, which has flown by very, very quickly. I mean, even in my time, I remember when I first started and I was shooting DV cam tape uh, and still editing onto Beta SP. When I traveled, we'd still have to take Beta SX cameras with us. Don't ask me why. I never quite did understand why. One part of my organization in the UK was on DV Cam and the other was on Beta SX. But, so even in my 17 years, I've seen massive, massive changes. Uh, I was talking to a friend just the other day about how much fun editing on tape was. You know, there was nothing like the, the excitement of punching that jog shuttle wheel, you know, as you had sort of 30 seconds to make air. And also, uh, when we didn't rely on FTPing material back to headquarters for transmission... You know, we'd actually have to play it out over a satellite. You know, I remember doing live rolls into live programs, you know, where we'd literally finish editing 30 seconds before they start reading the cue into the film. And you'd have to run, put it in the machine, cue it off the first flame, first frame of black onto the first frame. And then you'd listen into the gallery or sometimes the engineer would be listening and he'd have to manually point at you to press play. I mean, that was bloody exciting. And sadly, we don't do that anymore. Um... I say sadly, maybe some people don't miss those days at all. But for me, it was fantastic. And that was the real adrenaline, not editing and then feeding over a 
a dodgy Wi-Fi connection and praying that it gets there in time because you have no control over it whatsoever. Anyway, there's my reminisces finished. Look, guys, I'm probably going to take a couple of weeks break from the podcast now. Uh, I've done quite a few episodes in a row. And frankly, on top of having a full-time job and a baby due in just a few weeks, uh, I'm going to take a little break. I will try and put some more podcasts out as soon as I can. And please do reach out and let me know if you want to be interviewed or if there's anyone you recommend I interview. Because I'm not quitting the podcast. Uh, Thanks to the support from quite a few of you sending me messages to keep me motivated. Uh, I am going to keep going. I just may not for the near future with a baby on the way be able to do it every week. But let's see. Anyway, guys, thanks again. Take care of yourselves and keep in touch. Remember, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as at Image Junkies with an I-E-S, all one word. And you can also check my website, imagejunkies.net and also the YouTube channel. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.